Our Lord and God, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus, your son. We do ask, Lord, that you would give us listening ears, that you would give us believing hearts, that you would give to us understanding minds. God, help us this morning to to see your overarching providence in all that we do, that there are no chance happenings, but that all things are ordered and ordained by you and that you are pursuing the fulfillment of all of your plans for your glory and for the good of your church. Lord, I decrease so that you may increase. Become less so that you alone can become more. I decrease. Let your people see you, Father, not me. Let them hear you, Father. We pray, God, that you are glorified. You alone are praised. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The last time that we were privileged to to be together, we were journeying through the fifth chapter of the book of Esther. Esther has made the brave decision to go to King Ahasuerus in order to plead with him on behalf of her people who are in danger of being annihilated by the wicked decree of Haman that was backed by King Ahasuerus. Esther has passed the, the court without permission. There is one law for those who stand before the king uninvited. They are to be put to death. Yet death did not come to Esther that day. Rather, when the king sees Esther standing before him, he is delighted at the presence of his queen. The Bible says in Esther 5, 2, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. The king was delighted to see Esther. Why was the king delighted to see his queen? Because the king's heart was in the hand of the king of kings. God had softened the heart of this unpredictable man, King Ahasuerus, and he was pleased to see Queen Esther. King Ahasuerus invites the queen to ask for whatever she desires. He says even up to half of his kingdom. Esther is not there for the kingdom, though. Esther knows why she's there. She's there to plead her case to the king. But she doesn't do so right away. She uses patience. She invites the king. And listen to this. Of all people, she invites Haman to a banquet that she would personally prepare and oversee. Haman receives this invitation and he is overjoyed at the honor that has been given to him to join the king and the queen at a private banquet. He seems to be on top of the, of the world. He seems to be on top of the highest peaks. He went home and said to his wife and said to his friends, verse 11, chapter 5, Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all of the promotions with which he had been honored or had been, the king had honored him. And how he advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Haman believed that he was on top of the world. On the highest of mountains. And little did he know that he was on the downward slide that that he would soon meet his end. We must, brothers and sisters, never envy 
the wicked. Even when they seem to be on top of the world, their end is destruction. Meanwhile, Mordecai is faithfully at the king's gate. By living a life of unbowed faithfulness to God, he has become an aroma of death to Haman, who concluded after all of his boastings to his family in verse 13 of chapter 5, yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Everything was wonderful, except for the fact that Mordecai is still alive. So Haman's family makes this suggestion, put him to death. Have him killed. Then all of your problems will go away and you can celebrate with the king in peace. Verse 14. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. The chapter ends with Haman not waiting to kill Mordecai on the day that had been described or set for all of the Jews to be killed. No. He's prepared a day that was dedicated just for Mordecai to be killed. Then as we come to the end of the fifth chapter, we are left wondering, does Esther really have a plan? Or is she simply praying and hoping that God will do something, that God will do something miraculous? Does she have a plan? Esther does have a plan. And her plan is is often a lot like your and my plan. Here is her plan. Her plan is to wait. Her plan is to hope. Her plan is to pray and to look for God to do something. That's her plan. Esther has no choice but to continue to live. Listen, brothers and sisters, one step after the other. She must get on with the business of life. And that, too, is often our best option. And and that is also the, the, the best display of faith. What must I do? What can I do? All I can do is take one step after another and keep on living, trusting that God is in control. Keep on marching. Keep on moving. And God is, in fact, doing something. He has, in fact, been doing something the entire time. As we enter this sixth chapter, it begins with with something very interesting. Look at verse one. On that night, verse one. The king could not sleep. On that night, the king could not sleep. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that on the night, that night, of all nights, the king suddenly could not sleep? It was the night before Haman had determined to put Mordecai to death. He had erected gallows. To have him hang the next day. And it was on that night. The night before. That the king cannot sleep. We know from Psalm 127. That it is the Lord who gives sleep to his beloved. If he is the one who gives sleep to his beloved. Then he is also the one who withholds sleep. Spurgeon says. Everything. As well as the most minute. And the most magnificent. Is ordered by the Lord. Who has prepared his throne in the heavens, whose kingdom rules over all. It seems, he says, a very small matter. Listen close to whether it seems a small matter as to whether or not you and I will sleep tonight. Or toss restlessly in our beds, 
but God will be in our rest and God will be in our wakefulness. We know not what the purpose may be, but his hand will be in it. Neither does man sleep or wake, but according to the decree of God. Think about that. When you sleep at night, when you're finally able to enter that REM of sleep, it is God who has gifted you with that. And when you awake in the morning, it is not so much your alarm. How many times do you know the times that you've snoozed it and didn't even realize I snoozed it five times? How did I snooze it five times? It is God who has awakened you. It is God who gives you the gift of sleep. It is God who gives you the gift of being awake. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the Greek Septuagint, states that the Lord, Septuagint, states that the Lord removed sleep from the king that night. This was no chance happening that the king could not sleep. God was on the move on behalf of his covenant people. God was answering the prayers of those who have been fasting and praying. It was God who removed sleep from the king that night. It was God who would not let him sleep. What did what did kings do in those times when they could not sleep? They could not do what we normally do in our time. They could not get on the web and search They could not put on ESPN or watch the History Channel to fall asleep, as I like to often do. So what does the king do? Of all things, think about this. Of all of the things that the king could do in order to aid his sleep, the king sends for the book of memorable memorable deeds. Now, isn't that interesting? And isn't that an interesting choice? I'm sure that there were many books in their kingdom. I'm sure that there were many options for the king to do in order to to make him or to help him go to sleep, to to help him become fatigued. But of all the things that he could choose, he uses his free choice to make a choice that we've all been waiting for him to choose. I can't sleep. Servant, bring to me, uh, I don't know, the book of memorable deeds. (laughs) Now, why is that a choice that we've all been waiting for? Because in the second chapter, we read that Mordecai had saved the king from would-be assassins. And the second chapter ends by saying this, and the deed of Mordecai was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king, or the book of memorable deeds. We are left at the end of that second chapter thinking, that's it? That's it? This man just saved the king's life. And all they do is record it. It's simply written down. We must remember from our last lesson that the timing of the Lord is perfect. That God is rarely in a hurry. And now, on the night before Mordecai is to be put to death, the king is not able to sleep. And of all of the things that he could ask for to aid his sleep, give to me the book of memorable deeds. When the book of memorable deeds is requested, I'm sure that there were a number of memorable deeds in that book. But the king just so happens to come across the memorable deed of Mordecai. And we've all been waiting for this. There's been great anticipation for this moment. The the tables are to be about to be remarkably reversed. 
the king discovered that Mordecai has performed a marvelous deed. He saved his life. And the king asked in verse 3, what honor or what distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Nothing has been done. The king asked, well, who then is in the court that can honor Mordecai? Is there anyone that is in the court waiting that I could send to go and honor Mordecai for what he's done? Now, we don't know how much time has passed from the moment that Mordecai saved the king's life to this present time. But when it happened initially, it seems as if there was no hurry to honor Mordecai. It was just written down. And now all of a sudden the king reads Mordecai's deed and let's let's honor the man and let's do it right now. Who's in the courtyard? Isn't that interesting? And isn't it interesting that just as the king is asking who is in the court, that Haman happens to be coming and not only coming, but waiting to see the king. The servants say, actually, as a matter of fact, Haman is standing in the court waiting to see you. The king says, bring him in. Isn't that interesting? When he enters the king's court, the king sees Haman. Haman, good to see you. I'm sure Haman thought, king, good to see you too. They both have questions for one another. Haman is there to ask for Mordecai's death. The king is going to ask Haman to honor Mordecai's life. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Here's the question. Verse 6. What should be done, Haman, to the man whom the king delights to honor? What does Haman do? Haman inserts his own name into the man the king delights to honor. He inserts, he puts his name in that blank spot. Oh, for me, you mean. Haman is so full of his own importance. He's so preoccupied with his own status that he believes the king is speaking of him. Verse 6, whom the king delights to honor. Who does the king delight to honor more than me, Haman thought. Verse 6, oh, you want to honor someone, king. Well, here's what you should do. Verse 7, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. Let him put on your own clothes. And the horse the king has ridden, let him ride your own horses. And whose royal head, or, and whose royal, something, Oh, and on whose royal head a royal crown is set and let robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's noble officials. Let them dress the man who the king delights to honor and let them lead him on a horse through the city square or square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman, he's in a fantasy world. He is daydreaming. It is almost as if the king has said to him, what is your greatest wish? And Haman just starts to daydream and describe to him his greatest delights, his greatest daydream, his greatest fantasy. In his fantasy, he is the most adored. In his own fantasy, he is the most admired. In his own fantasy, he's the king. And just as quickly as Haman has come up with his own fantasy and then drifted into it. The king brings that fantasy crashing down to reality. That sounds great, Haman. Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and so do, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. And hey, Haman, leave out nothing you've mentioned, verse 10. 
Haman. Can you imagine? He is utterly horrified. The king is not speaking of him. He's speaking of the despised Jew, Mordecai. And hey, Haman, don't leave anything out. It's a great plan. Go for it. This man who has been like a thorn in the side of Haman. The one man who would not bow down and honor Haman. The one man that he wanted to wipe from the face of the earth. Haman now leads this man, Mordecai, through the city square. Can you imagine the scene? Dressed in everything he believes he should be dressed in. Honored in the way that he believes that he should be honored. And he proclaims to everyone in the city square, this is Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. This is not Bakersfield downtown. This is, if you can imagine, Times Square downtown, New York City. Haman is leading Mordecai, and he must repeat over and over again, aloud, this is the man that the king delights to honor. Can you imagine the anger and frustration of Haman? It's little wonder that we are told that after Haman leads Mordecai through the city square, he goes home in mourning with his head covered. Now think about Mordecai. His people are on the verge of being annihilated and he is being praised. What went through his mind? We'll never know until we meet him in glory. But I'm sure that there was a mixture of emotions The unexpected elevation of Mordecai has caused great humiliation to Haman. He goes home and tells his wife and friends everything that happened to him. And this is the response of his wife and friends. Verse 13 of chapter 5. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, you're falling, you're sliding, you are headed toward a downward slope, Haman, is of the Jewish people. You will not overcome him, but you will surely fall down before him. Now, I want to ask you a question, and I think you should think hard about this. How is it that the family and friends of Haman, they now recognize the the futility of Haman's scheme to destroy Mordecai and his people? One chapter before, these same people had encouraged Haman to kill Mordecai. They were the ones who were egging him on, as it were. And now they're saying, if Mordecai is a Jew, as you say that he is, then you will not overcome him. But you will continue down this slippery slope that you are now sliding down. You will fall before him. How is that? How is it possible that they now see the futility in Haman's wicked deeds? How are we to understand this? We are to understand it in this way, that God has punctured their darkness. God has graciously given to these people the awareness, the awareness that if they continue in their sin, they will perish. It is a message to Haman and to those people of impending judgment that if you continue down this road, you will be destroyed. But it's also a message of mercy. 
No one can ever say that Haman did not receive the opportunity to repent. No one can ever say that Haman was not warned. No one can ever say that Haman was not at least given a red flag. And it was a red flag through sinful people. He was warned. Turn from your sin. You're fighting against God. You will not win. Some of you who were walking and living in sin, you remember that. You remember that even when you were living in sin and you were amongst sinners, they were saying to you, out of the mouth of sinners, you should be in church. Isn't that weird? They were saying to you when you were in your sin and they were sinning along with you, you don't belong here. You might remember some of those voices. You might remember some of those warnings that came from people who said to you, what are you doing here? As you sinned along with them, it was a warning from God. Turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Verse 14, while yet they were speaking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther prepared. It is the next day. And the banquet that Haman had so boasted that he had been invited to is now at hand. Verse seven or chapter one, verse chapter seven, verse one. So the king and Haman went in to the feast with Queen Esther. It is possible that Haman is thinking things can only get better from here. I mean, my life cannot get any worse. Things are only going up from here. The three of them, the king, the queen, Haman, they all enjoy the feast. But little does Haman know that that will be his last meal. After the feast, the three of them are drinking wine. And the king once again asks the question that is most pressing on his mind. Queen Esther, verse 2, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. <clears throat> and what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. These banquets, <clears throat> all of these banquets, these two banquets have been the result of Esther receiving favor from the king. He's inviting her. Ask whatever you want. It will be granted to you. The king has eaten. The king has drank. And she now senses the time is right. It is now the right time to ask the king. Dear king, you know what I want? Esther says, I want my life to be spared. I want my life to be saved. Now, that sounds like a weird thing coming from, from Esther, who's queen. Verse 3, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold merely as slaves. For if we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Esther says, save my life. Now, think about this. <clears throat> what the king has asked the queen. What do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. He's not whispering that to the queen. He's sitting at the table speaking aloud to the queen, right? Now, think about this. Picture it in your mind. Who's there at the table? The king. Esther and Mordecai. And I can imagine Mordecai is maybe taking a drink. And as the queen says, 
I'll tell you what I want. Haman is taking a drink. I want my life to be spared because we are a people who have been destined, determined to die. Can you imagine? Haman now putting down his drink. And he's Persian, so he was dark skinned. Can you imagine how white he must have gotten at that moment? (laughs) With fear. As he realizes that Esther is a Jew. This whole time she had kept her identity silent. She had kept it a secret. As Haman is seeking to destroy the Jews. And now he realizes she is a Jew. The king. And if you can imagine the king who loves his queen Esther. Who was chosen out of all of the women in Persia. He stands to his feet. In shock and in rage. Who would dare do so? Who is he? Where is he? And all the while, Haman is sinking down into his seat. But he doesn't sink quick enough because Esther's finger points in his direction. A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Verse 7 through 10. And the king arose from his wrath, from the wine drinking, and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. He knows he's going to die. He knows the king is furious. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the insinuation or the implication is that Haman is holding on to Esther, grabbing on to Esther. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king. They covered Haman's face. The king had not even finished speaking his words. And the executioners come and snatch up Haman. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, in attendance on the king, said, However, or moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. Wow. Wow. Brothers and sisters, how would you describe all of that? Meaning this, or what I mean is, how would you summarize The meaning of all that you have heard, not only in these past two chapters, but now in the past seven chapters. How would you summarize everything that you heard? How would you summarize the entire matter of the book of Esther? What would you say if you were to say, what is the book of Esther all about? I think some of us, we might say it's about the sovereignty of God. And you would not be wrong. It's a very true and appropriate answer. God is truly sovereign. 
One great truth that shines out of this book for our comfort is the sovereignty of God. And another great truth that shines out of this book and that is vitally joined to the sovereignty of God is the sovereign overruling providence of God. Providence of God. I wonder if you've ever heard of the providence of God. You may have heard of that word. You may have even used that word before and. Maybe you do or maybe you don't really know what that word means. Providence. Providence meaning foresight. Providence meaning prudence. Pro meaning ahead. And videri meaning seeing ahead. What do Christians mean? What does the Bible mean when the Bible and we speak of the word providence? Specifically, The providence of God, the looking ahead of God, the directing of God of all things. What is the providence of God? Let me first say what the providence of God is not. The providence of God is not that God looks ahead and sees the actions that we will act upon and then reacts to our actions. God does not look into an all-knowing crystal ball, seeing the future. And saying, okay, brother so-and-so does this, therefore I will do that. Sister so-and-so does this, therefore I will do that. God is not a reactionary God. God has ordered and ordained past, present, and the future. He is not reactionary. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. He's all-knowing. So when we say the providence of God, we do not mean that God is learning something as he looks into the future. God is all knowing he has already ordered and ordained the future. The providence of God. There are two aspects to the providence of God. Number one, there is the general providence of God or the common providence of God. God, by his general providence, upholds and directs as the king of the cosmos that he has created for his glory. He upholds. All things for his glory, all things that he has created, he actively upholds them. By his general providence, God upholds, directs, and brings to pass all of his purposes for the creation that he has brought into being. This is great encouragement. This is great encouragement for us because it is in this truth that it tells us that we live in a world that is, that is not acting randomly. And without purpose, we don't live in a world that is acting randomly. We do not live in an anarchist world. We do not live in a world that that is a maverick world or an independent world of the sovereign providence of God. R.C. Sproul says there are no even maverick molecules that float in the earth. Even the the most minute of molecules are under the sovereign providence of God. God plans all things for his creation and all of those things will come to pass. Brothers and sisters, however much we see and however much we experience in this world that makes us want to scream out that life is utterly meaningless, hopeless, empty, without form or purpose. Know that God tells us in his word 
He is ordering and ordaining all of the events of all of our lives for his glory. Amen. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Jesus said in Matthew 10.29, the sparrow does not even fall to the ground without God knowing and without God providentially ordering that sparrow to fall. Brothers and sisters, life is not a lottery. Life is not a crap, a crap shot or a toss of the dice. By the general purposeful providence of God, God is directing all things, ordering all things according to the counsel of his own will. And when we look into this world with the apparent mayhem of the world, dysfunction of the world, the apparent disorder of this world with wars and protests and disease and division and abuses, we are attempt, we are, we are tempted to despair and even ask, what kind of world is this? There can be no good God who is ordering all of this, can there? I'm a, a lover of history. And right now, I've been not studying, I've been watching biographies on Adolf Hitler. 50 million people is estimated to die. 50 million people. And I can imagine that there were some, if not many, of those millions who during that time were asking, where is God? How can this be of God? This, my child, has nothing but bones left on their body. I could see right through them. How is this of God? Have you ever been there? Have you ever asked yourself in the midst of a crisis, where is God? How can this be ordered of God? And in those times, it is in those times that we must remind ourselves that God is most on the field. Even when he appears to be most invisible. He is most on the field. God, where is he? God is there. We need constantly to remind ourselves that this world is being directed according to the counsel of God's will and purpose. All things. So when I look into this world and I, I see things and I hear things that sometimes leaves me utterly speechless. What comforts me? What encourages me most of all is that underneath all of this, around all of this, and beneath, behind all of this apparent chaos, my God, my God is in heaven. And he is pursuing his perfect, wise, and just purposes. He is building his church. And he is bringing to pass his eternal decree to the praise of his glory. That's something that cannot be overstated. My, my, uh, Pastor Zay encouraged me this past week, and so did Pastor John. I'm going to say this every single week. 
as we go through the book of Esther. And you would do well to be reminded of it every single week that God is on the throne. God is in control. God is the one who is ordering and ordaining all things for his glory. You would do well to remind yourself of that, not just every Sunday, but every single day. It is God who is on the throne. Satan is not on the throne. My job is not on the throne. The economy, so on and so on. God alone is on the throne. He is ordering all things for his glory. That can never become redundant. It must be a truth that we live by every single day. This is the general providence of God, succinctly. But there was another aspect of the providence of God that is uniquely important to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is this, secondly, the special providence of God. Not the general, but the special providence of God. The special providence of God by which God saves, God cares for, God preserves, and God ultimately brings his church Glory through his son or brings glory to himself for his church through his son. Better way to say that. And it is this providence, this special providence that we are seeing in the book of Esther, in these chapters that we've read thus far. It is God's cause, God's kingdom in the world that is being threatened by Haman's evil decree. And God is not just intervening on behalf of Esther. God is not just stepping in on behalf of Mordecai. And he's not even stepping in on behalf of the Jews per se. God is stepping in so that he may preserve the deliverer. The savior who was to come through the Jews. God is preserving his promise. He's preserving the promise that he made back in Genesis 3.15. He's preserving the covenant of redemption that he had established within the Godhead before the foundation of the world. He is preserving his church. God's people are being threatened by the decree. And it appears that they are hanging by a thread. And Haman didn't understand it all. Haman didn't understand it all. He didn't understand who he was really fighting against until it was too late. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that. Where you just realize it's too late, I've lost. Haman saw Mordecai, but that's all he saw. Haman did not see the God of Mordecai who had encamped around Mordecai until it was too late. You may remember the story of Elisha and his servant in Second Kings chapter 6. The king of Assyria was seeking to destroy the people of Israel. As they were preparing to pass by the armies of the Syrians, they receive a word. The Israelites receive a word from Elisha, Elisha the prophet, who warns them, don't go that way. There's a trap. It's waiting for you to be, you're, you're, you're to be destroyed if you go that way. So the Israelites go another direction. Israel was saved that day. And this troubled the king of Syria. How could it be? We had set up the perfect trap for these people. We were sure to destroy them. How was it possible? How did they escape my hands? There's no way. 
The king of, of Syria believes that there's, there's a spy in his camp. There must be a traitor, one who betrayed us for the Israelites until one of his servants says, no, that's not it. There's a prophet in Israel. And he tells the king of Israel, even your most darkest secrets that you speak in your room. The Bible says that he, he tells the king the words that you speak in your bedroom. The king of Syria is, is flabbergasted. Okay, let's go kill this prophet that you speak of. Let's go destroy him. Second Kings chapter 6 verse 14. So they sent their horses, chariots, and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city in which Elisha had stayed. Elisha's servant woke up in the morning and saw the city surrounded by the armies of Syria. And he runs back to Elisha and says, we're doomed. Alas, what shall we do? We're done for. There is no hope for us. But the servant of Elisha did not know, did not yet know what he would learn that day. And that is this. That God was most on the field, even when he seemed to be most invisible. What was the response of Elisha? It was the response of a man who understood the special providence of God. That God is ordering and ordaining and working out all things according to the counsel of his will. Second Kings 6, 4, 6, 16. He says to his servant, do not be afraid. Can you imagine? We're afraid when a police officer drives our way. <laughs> when we see them in our rearview mirror, we've done nothing wrong. But we just feel like they're going to pull us over for something, right? The city is surrounded. And the response of Elisha is, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, the servant doesn't get it. What are you talking about, you crazy prophet? What do you mean? Look outside. Who is with us? It's me and it's you. Then Elisha prayed. And said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. All around Elisha. He appeared to be weak. He appeared to be without hope. He appeared that he would be struck down by the Syrians that day, but instead the Syrians were struck down by blindness. So blind that Elisha walks out of the city right past them. And you know what the Syrians did? They never came back. They understood that those who are with God are more than those who are against him. It is reminiscent of the words of David who said to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. And that day, he cuts off the head of the giant. With a sling and a stone. Encamped around Israel. Encamped around David. Encamped around Mordecai and encamped around you and I who have placed our faith in Christ alone is the Lord of hosts. Jesus said that he will build his church and he is building his church in the midst of all the chaos we see. In the midst of all utter hopelessness, as it were, that we see. 
The Lord is building his church. He is protecting his church. He is preserving his church by the special providence of God. The providence of God is your glorious encouragement. You are the people of God. Therefore, it is your great encouragement. You need not fret in this world. You need not be troubled in this world. You are a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have special providence of God on your life. We used to pray for favor back in the charismatic days. We used to come to altars and pray that hopefully something in that preacher's hand would come special upon us and something special would happen in our lives. The special moment happened when we received Christ as our Savior and, he, and when he changed our hearts from stone to flesh. We then became a part of the special people of God who walk day and night with the providence of God on our lives. Our lives then are not at the mercy of the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortunes, as Hamlet would say, but rather... Our lives are in the hands of God. And what has Christ promised? That no one will be able to pluck us out of those hands. What an encouragement. What an encouragement. Therefore, after all of this and in light of all of this, therefore, that is why our great task as Christians, listen, our great task is to set our hand to the plow and keep on moving forward. That is why our great task as Christians is to put one foot in front of the other and keep on walking. Walk on. We are not to spend our lives looking to the stars, trying to discern certain signs and symbols. We are not to look into the newspaper every single day looking for signs and symbols. We're not to climb mountain peaks in hopes that God might speak to us in an audible way. Through the wind, somehow giving us direction as to what we are to do with our lives. Rather, we are to do a greater task. A task that requires more faith than we sometimes realize that we possess. That is to take one foot and place it in front of the other and walk on. Walk on. Whatever your hand finds itself doing, do it with all of your might to the glory of God. Wherever your feet take you, do it with all of your might to the glory of God. And know this, that when you find yourselves, wherever you find yourselves, that God is mightily at work and he is forwarding his purposes for his glory and for your good. Wherever you find yourself, know that it is by the general and special providence of God that you are where you are. Wherever you are, place one foot in front of the other and walk on. By faith, walk on. Knowing that your hands are in the hands of the master. That is why the hymn writer said, put thou trust in God, in duty's path, go on. Walk in his strength with faith and hope so that work shall be done. It is normally speaking that in the everyday events of life that God is developing and unfolding his divine purposes. 
As the psalmist said, my times are in your hands. My days are in your hands. That is hope for the believer. That's our hope. Maybe you're not a believer this morning. God is the one who's created you. In his image, the Imago Dei, he's created you in his image. To glorify him. To worship him. To serve him alone. But you failed. You didn't fail because you were a drug addict or because you were an alcoholic or because you were some kind of blasphemer. It was a deeper problem than that. You were a sinner who found its sin rooted in Adam. And the things that we do are evidence of the fact that we are sinners in Adam. We were lost. And if you're a sinner, you are lost. And you are without any hope in and of yourself. You will not come to God unless God, by his grace, draws you near to him. And you have good news if you are a sinner this morning. You have good news because the Savior has come and lived a life that you could never live. Who lived a life of perfect obedience to the commands and law of God. And then, friends, he was crucified. He was crucified in our place. He died a death that we deserved. But death could not hold him. Because not only was he a man, but he was the God man. And God showed that he accepted the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. And he is alive forevermore. And he calls you to repent of your sin this morning and to turn to him and to him alone. As your only way of being saved. As your only way of seeing a life beyond this life. As the only way of quenching the sting of death. It's found in Christ and in Christ alone. Repent of your sins if you have not. Turn to Christ. Know that it is by grace that you have been saved. That you will be saved. And not of yourself. And know that there is a cost in following him. You must take up your cross every single day. You must live one foot after the other by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have a promise. An eternal hope. That when this life is over, I'll fly away home. Have you received that this morning? Have you believed that this morning? Is Christ your anchor of hope this morning? If he's not, then I pray that you turn to him. Because salvation is found in none else than Jesus Christ. Let us stand.